Father, we thank you for the freedom we have to gather this evening, Lord, these uh, many years. And Lord, we thank you the church around the world, persecuted, going through difficulties, Lord, not enjoying the freedom that we have here. And we never do want to take that for granted. So, Lord, as we have opportunity to look into the pages of Scripture, Lord, what a simple privilege it is. Your word, Lord, eternal, Lord. We pray you give us individually, Lord, our portion this evening. And we trust that you'll do that, Lord. You've been so faithful for decades. We look to you, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we have come as far as 2816. We follow Paul in this journey, the storm, the snake, the whole thing. And then up, it tells us finally to Rome. It says when they got the Puteoli in verse 13 and then verse 14, they found certain brethren there and uh, stayed with them for seven days, and then they moved towards Rome. And then he says they went to the Apian Forum and the place of the three taverns, and the brethren heard they were there. Remember, Paul wrote Romans three years before this. And if you read Romans chapter 16, he addressed a lot of people. And i kind of gone through chapter 16 in my own Bible and highlighted my I, my, and you see his personal involvement with all of these people, though he had not yet been to Rome. And uh, the very interesting thing this evening as we finish it up, when Paul writes Romans chapter 1, he says, you know, the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But when he reaches the capital of the world, the gospel had gone to the Gentile first, and the Jews then are going to be catching up in this chapter. It's very interesting. So, the church comes and meets him and encourages him in 14 and 15. His heart is stirred. How many maybe he hadn't seen for years, probably some he had heard about. He says there were some who were in the faith before him. They'd been saved longer than he had. So just you can imagine, this is the capital of the world. And Dr. Luke has taken the time, moved by the Holy Spirit, to give us the record of the gospel going from Jerusalem to Rome, the capital of the world. And because that happened, we're here this evening. The gospel continued to spread through Europe, to Asia, to the Middle East, and so forth. So Paul then, it tells us in verse 16, finally he comes to Rome. And when we came to Rome, it says, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but... Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So Paul finally comes to Rome. Three years before this, if you look over, uh, you're right there at Romans. Uh, verse 10 says, Making my request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey, he didn't dream, by the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. Paul finally realized that. I long to come. He wrote Romans three years before this, about two and a half years before this. Remember, he's in the Antonia Fortress in jail, in, in custody, and the Lord appears to him and says, Paul, take heart. You did a good job, but you're all also going to bear witness of me in Rome. It tells him that. And this is the end of this long journey. He finally then comes to Rome. And as he comes there, it tells us the other prisoners are handed off. The Colosseum wasn't finished yet, but they had the arenas. They had still gladiators. They had the wild beasts and smaller arenas. So they probably didn't live much longer this. I don't know how many of them had come to faith in that journey. I don't know how many of them had come to believe. You know, whoever these prisoners were, whatever crimes they committed, the Lord cared enough to put them on a boat with Paul. And uh, many of them probably went to their death as believers and stepped through into glory, like the thief on the cross next to our Savior. 
But it says, but Paul now was suffered, he was allowed, he was given permission to live in his own place. Look over in verse 30, it says, and Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired, rented house and received all that came to him. So he's going to be in Rome for two full years and he's in a hired place here, it says, um, The money for that, look, we know this. Rent was expensive. In Rome, they had one-story apartments, three-story apartments, five-story apartments. And Paul somehow has the resources to rent something. It's spacious enough, which is unusual, for it seems Luke and Aristarchus are there with him. Um, Many of the Jews come and are in fellowship with him there. So we look at these things and, and we hear Paul saying that he's the, the prisoner of Christ in Philippians when he writes to them, I'm in the bonds in Christ. And he said, but that's manifest in all of the palace. In fact, when he signs off in Philippians, he says, all the saints salute you. He's writing from the prison in Rome, from the custody To the Philippians, he says, all of the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. So he's in custody. Every so many hours, the soldier is unchained and a new soldier is chained. Now, he's lightly chained. He's a Roman citizen. He's under the jurisdiction of the captain of the camp. Now, very interesting, no doubt, Julius, the centurion, who had been with him since chapter 27, verse 1, where we're told that he was the centurion of the Augustus band. And it wasn't Caesar Augustus. Augustus just spoke of, you know, the the honored one, the, the majestic one, which was Nero at this point. We're in the early years of Nero's reign. He doesn't lose his mind till later. These first five, six years under the tutelage of Seneca, he's reasonable and so forth. So this centurion that had traveled with him, no doubt as we come here, he knows the captain of the camp. Speaking of the Praetorian, Paul in Philippians chapter 1 talks about the Praetorian, that he's there. Now the Praetorian is very interesting because the Romans kept great records. We know some things about this. The Caesars that went from Tiberius to Claudius to Nero um, covered a series of years. And during those reigns, there were always two Praetorian generals. And the Praetorian was made up of nine cohorts, 9,000 men. But we're at a very interesting point here from about... 52 to 64 AD, there was one general over both Praetorian, and uh, the Romans kept great record. His name was Sextus Afrianus Burus. You can remember that. General Burus would be good enough. And he, he had charge of both the Praetorian, 18,000 men around the Senate and the emperor's uh, palace and so forth, and he had direct access to Caesar on a daily basis. So no doubt he knew Julius, who was a special centurion related to uh, the the emperor as well. And when he got there, now Julius, I'm convinced, is a believer by this time. Everything he had been through, everything he had seen, the miracles and so forth in Malta. Julius must have said to... General Buras, he must have said, look, this guy's not a criminal. He's not dangerous, and you don't have to worry about him fleeing from his, you know, there's no danger of flight from his, you know, the jurisdiction. He's not going to run if he gets the freedom. So he's given great consideration, and through General Buras, he's given his own place. And again, Philippians, he thanks them for giving money to support him. He said, when other churches weren't supporting me, you did. Offerings continued to come in as Paul was there. The church supported him. And we know from 
Philippians, we know from Colossians that Aristarchus is with him, that Luke is with him, even Mark is back with him by this time. And he said he calls some of them, Epaphrodites, his fellow prisoners, um, not saying they were necessarily in prison, but they stayed with him where he was chained to this Roman guard. And this went on for two years. So we have this remarkable entrance into Rome at this point in time. The prisoners go one way. The captain of the guard, General Buros, but Paul was suffered. He was allowed. He had permission to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And it came to pass that after three days, no, we don't know if the three days are to rent, three days are getting established. It came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews. Now we're going to hear about the Jews here, the Jews in 19, Judea in 21. We're going to hear of many of them in in 23. Uh, All the way through this ministry, he's going to step into with History says there were at least 11 synagogues in Rome. There was no structure like the Sanhedrin. They were not organized the way Jerusalem was, but there's at least 11 synagogues functioning at this point in time. So it says, as soon as Paul got established there, and this is no doubt through the Christians that he knew, some of which were Jewish and may have been fellowshipping at these synagogues. It says, it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together because he couldn't go see them. Normally his habit was to go into the synagogue. And when they were come together, he said unto them, men and brethren, he always started that way, speaking to the Jews, though I have committed nothing against the people, that's Israel, or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, like this one I'm chained to right now, who when they had examined me, they would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. So, you know, Felix and Festus, they wanted to get Paul off their hands. There's an imperfect tense here. Willing to let, they, they, they wanted to let him go and kept wanting to let him go. They were looking for the reason. Once Paul appealed to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen, you know, uh, Festus said, you know, you appeal to Caesar. That's where, you know, to Caesar you go. So he said, I made this appeal and ended up in the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, would have let me go. They wanted to and kept wanting to let me go because there was no case of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, it's really interesting. He doesn't indict the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem when he goes through here. He says, the Jews spoke against it. I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that I had aught to accuse my nation of. So he says, it's not because I had anything against the Jews. In the letter to the Romans, he wrote three years before this, he had, he had told them in chapter 9, I wish that I myself could be accursed from Christ, that my brethren could come into the church and be believers. In chapter 11, verse 5, he said that God has always had a remnant, even as he does at this time even as he does in Israel at this time. He always has a remnant. So Paul, you know, face to face now with these Jews, the, the Jewish leaders of the capital of the world. This is a dream for him. This is a dream for him. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel the Messiah, the resurrected one, I am bound with this chain because of the hope of Israel. Now, by the way, it seems this is the first time in the whole process of several years that he's actually chained. You remember Claudius Lysias, who was a tribune, had put him in chains, and as soon as he found out he was a Roman citizen, he took them off because it was illegal. And it even seems that 
on the ship, on the, the, the trip there, that Julius let him go ashore by himself, believing that he would be back. So this seems to be the first time, and probably because General Buros reported directly to Nero, they wanted to make sure that he was where he belonged. So it says, even now I'm bound with this chain. And they said unto him, we neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. He says, they said, we haven't heard anything negative about it. We, we haven't heard any of this. Now, we don't know if some of the letters were lost in the shipwreck, but it seems that the Sanhedrin, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, just seems like the, the, the leadership there never filed charges against Paul in Rome because they knew they wouldn't stand. So there's no, at the end of the book here, he's either acquitted or he's found innocent. And both reasons would be because the, the charge is dismissed because no official charges were filed from Jerusalem. And it seems maybe that's why they waited two years. But they said, we haven't heard anything negative. We, we haven't heard anything. We've not received any letters. We don't know, you know, we didn't hear about any of this. We didn't know that this was going on. They say, but, now this is Paul's dream, listen to this, but we desire to hear of you. Are you kidding me? Every other synagogue he went to, they beat him up and threw him out and stoned him. He, here he comes to Rome. They said, we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. We, we, we want to know your, your, you know, your deal. What, how are you tied into this for... As concerning this sect, now they call the Pharisees a sect and the Sadducees a sect. They don't think a heretical sect the way you and I would. So they say concerning this sect, the Nazarenes, the Christians, which at this point many of them still thought was a Jewish sect. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against that is causing trouble everywhere. Now, this sect, you know, it tells us interesting in Acts chapter 1, it says that there there were gathered in Jerusalem Parthians and Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and in parts of Libya and Cyrene, and strangers of Rome and Jews and proselytes. So how many of the Roman believers that are Jews had been on Pentecost, and over 3,000 saved at that point, it was at least 5,000 within a week or so after that, how many of them had come back to Rome? So Rome is hearing of this sect, these Jews in Rome. They haven't heard anything negative about Paul, but they said the hard thing is it seems like people are speaking against this this group everywhere. Now, the fact that they say, we want to hear from you, means they haven't heard. Apollos hasn't been there. Peter hasn't been there. There's no apostolic teaching that any of them have heard. So they want to hear from Paul. You know, he's the first one, it seems, to come to them. And this is Paul's dream, to be sitting in a, in a large room or two, with the Jewish leaders of the capital of the world saying, we want to hear what you got to say about this deal. It's his dream. It's a dream. You have to imagine this. And he's thinking, Lord, you said that I would give testimony at Rome and hear your word is proving true in my life once again. And it says, and when they had appointed... Now imagine this, they appointed him a day. There came many to him into his lodging to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. That's a mouthfit. It almost took a morning to evening to read that verse. 
You know, imagine that what they meet with him the first time, say, look, we want to hear about this. And they probably said, you know, there's other synagogues, other Jewish leaders, they want to hear. So Paul, so they say, let's set aside a day. They get out their calendars and they actually set aside a day when they're all going to come in here. Now, you know, Paul is praying. You know, he's got Luke and Aristarchus and the Christians in Rome praying because this meeting is now on the table. And I can't imagine how emotional this was for Paul. They appointed him a day, these Jewish leaders. And there came, notice, many, when it talks about the Jews that came, many of them came to him in his lodging. Now look, he's got Roman guards chained to him for the two years through this whole thing. That's why he says, the brethren greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How many? of these Roman guards had come to Christ during this whole process. It says, many came to him, to his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God. So now he's opening the Old Testament. Most of these quotes are from the Septuagint, if you're interested, but he's, he's, he's teaching out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And, uh, as he's doing this, he's expounding. He's, he's an expositor. He's opening up the scripture. He's teaching it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Here's what this chapter means. Here's what this verse means. He's expounding to them, and they respected that. They had spent their lives studying the scripture. He's expounding unto them and testifying, no doubt what happened to him on the road to Damascus and so forth, the kingdom of God. And in his process, he must be saying, look, I persecuted. I, I didn't believe in this sect either. I was, I was the greatest enemy in Jerusalem. And then on the road to Damascus, he appeared to me. And I fell on my face. I was blind for three days. He restored my sight and said he was going to send me to the Gentiles, to kings and to rulers. And he, here I am in Rome. I can't believe that this has happened and he's ascended. Now, it says here he's, he's testifying of the kingdom of God. He's ascended. He's returning. And he's going to take the throne of his father, David, forever. That's what the angel has said to Mary. And set up his kingdom. He's expounding and testifying of these things. And it says, no doubt, persuading them concerning Jesus. And notice this, both out of the law... Of Moses and out of the prophets. And he keeps going from morning till evening. And morning in that culture meant when the sun came up, by the way. Uh, from morning till evening. Wouldn't you love to have this study in English, not in Greek? You know, wouldn't you love to have this study from morning till evening? Paul expounding the scriptures from the law of Moses, from the prophets. And here's the interesting thing today. You know, I've been in Israel many times. And the Hasidim there, the Orthodox Jews, they're completely committed to the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and the Talmud. And they constantly quote and study the law and the Talmud. But the ones who get past that and start to look into the prophets to prove that Messianic Jews or Christians are wrong, those are the ones who end up getting saved. Those are the ones who end up coming to Christ. Once they get past presently the law and the Talmud, the scripture opens up to them when they start to read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12.10 and all of these places. And Paul, no doubt, is doing that here as he is teaching. And it says, from morning till evening, and look at verse 24. It says, and some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. I mean, this, this is the story of human history. This is the way the Holy Spirit ends the book of Acts. Some believed, and some did not. But the interesting thing there in the Greek, it almost insinuates 50-50, which is way above poor Paul's n n normal average, you know. If he's getting half of these Jewish leaders, this is a huge day for him. And have them believe, have them don't. Then it tells us they keep debating amongst themselves. It wasn't like they dropped it. Even the ones who didn't believe had listened. And it says some of them believed 
the things which were spoken by Paul and some believed but. Those both, both of those are imperfect. They believed and kept believing. They didn't believe. They kept not believing. And there's a process here that the, the Holy Spirit is putting in front of us. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after Paul. So isn't it interesting? It doesn't seem like the argument turns against Paul, like it did in synagogues all over Asia. They turn against each other. They're listening to him, and they begin to argue. And it says, then finally, they depart from there. And when they agreed not among themselves, this contention, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word to them, a verse, a scripture, which is this. Paul said, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophets unto your fathers. Now, this is interesting. Verbal inspiration right there. He doesn't say Isaiah said it. He says the Lord said it through Isaiah. Isaiah was the mouthpiece of something the Lord wanted to say to your fathers. It was the word of God. It was the words of God. It came through the mouth of Isaiah. He was just his mouthpiece. But what they heard was eternal. It was fact. It was unchanging. Well spake the Holy Ghost. He's the one who's speaking through Isaiah, the prophet, unto your fathers, saying, the Holy Ghost now, go unto this people and say, hearing you shall not hear and shall not understand. Seeing you shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. Now, he's pulling this from, and they all knew it well, chapter 6 of Isaiah, in the year the king Uzziah died, I lift up my eyes and I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He goes through the whole thing. And then he says he saw the seraphim there. And uh, one of them, you know, the, the, the ears of voice, Who's going to go first? Who should we send? And he says, send me, Lord. And it says, one of the seraphim, take a, which means the burning one, takes a coal from the altar with tongs. So that altar's hot if the burning one needs to use tongs to do it and puts it on, you know, on Isaiah's mouth. He says, woe me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and, and the Lord says, Isaiah, you're going to go. But understand, they have ears. They're not going to hear. They have eyes they're not going to see. And their heart has become gross. It's dull. It's callous. And it's almost like God may be saying that to you, you know. Are you willing to fight a losing battle? The war is won. The word is eternal. Everything that Isaiah said was true. And we're seeing those things happen around us today. But are you willing to lose a battle here and there, to be obedient to the Lord. The war is won. It's secure. Our destiny is sealed. But somehow in the process along the way, even Paul the Apostle here, you can lose a battle here and there. Good intentions, speaking truth, brokenhearted for the people you're talking to. Are you willing to do that if the Lord says, go on, do it? Isaiah, say this, speak to them, lay this on them, give it to them. And you know that if he's quoting Isaiah, that he already had quoted Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 
and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did esteem, we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, he hath carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. In all the testimony Paul's giving, you know, from morning till night, taking through the law and the prophets, and now finally he's quoting Isaiah to them. So you know he had spent time there in the book of Isaiah, and it says, Go unto this people and say, Hearing you shall hear and shall not, twice in this Verse, we have the double negative, shall not, not, no way, understand. And seeing, you shall see not, the oime, not, not, you're never going to see this, and perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, callous, it's hardened, and their ears are dull of hearing. Look, now he does something interesting here. He tells us the center of faith of the human being is the heart. The heart is the seat of desire. The heart is the most powerful drive in a human being. The heart always makes a convert of the mind if you give it time. That's why this, some of the smartest people do some of the stupidest things. I don't have to worry about that. I'm a stupid person who does stupid things. But you know, but it says, first, because of their heart, it says, for the heart of this people is, is calloused. That's why their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes have they closed. And then he reverses it here. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and then understand with their heart. Isn't it interesting? And they should be converted, and I should heal them. Look, Isaiah here, 6, 9, 10, is quoted seven times in the New Testament. And Paul is not saying to them, you're going to be lost, you hard-hearted Jews. What he's saying is, look, this is our history. God himself spoke through Isaiah. They were the words of the Lord. So it was truth. It was established. And back then, in the days of Isaiah, our forefathers, they listened but their hearts were hardened. So though, though they saw, they didn't perceive. Though they heard, they didn't understand. And, and the lesson of that, as he's taking them through the Old Testament, he said, don't let that be the story now. I don't believe he's heaping in on them, condemning them. He's saying we still have the same potential, as you and I do in this room so often, to hear the word of God and not listen, or to see the hand of God and not respond. He, he says here that he had wished it had been turned the other way from how it had been in Isaiah's day. He wants to see that for them. Eyes, they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted wonderfully, and I should heal them. Be it known, therefore, unto you, that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, that they will hear. Uh, it's emphatic there. They, those Gentiles, they're the ones, they're going to listen. Now, there's already a large Gentile congregation, a number of congregations in Rome. So it isn't new to these Jews. Many of those in the Christian congregations were born-again Jews, and no doubt some of those born-again Jews were still fellowshipping in the synagogue with a burden for their family and their friends. And he says here, understand, he said, this salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear, and the idea is hear to obey. You know, Jesus had said... This is not new, you know, looking at them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest those that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thee unto myself as a chick, as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, but you would not. From henceforth, your house is here, it's left unto you desolate. And you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. You would not. 
And Paul is he's exacting that kind of pressure, saying, this is, this is our history. You're not the first ones that have heard something and you're not sure what to do with it. Don't you remember this happened in Isaiah's day? And when he had said these words, the Jews departed, end of a long day, and they had great reasoning among themselves. They, 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 they're back and forth with each other as they leave. It isn't like this is over, this, this what they heard from this Pharisee from the school of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, a Pharisee, the Pharisees, you know, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. He's got cred. He's got papers. So they leave, and as they do, it says they continue to reason. They continue to go back and forth about these issues. And then it says, and Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, this place that he rented, and he received notice. So his conversation is not over. He received all that came in unto him. We're told this in Ephesians. Paul says there, he's asking of the saints that you would be praying always with all prayer and supplication. He wrote this from Rome, from prison, in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me. That utterance may be given unto me that may open, I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds. And therein I may speak boldly as I ought. He asked the Ephesian church for prayer as he was in this situation. The Colossian church, he says this. He says, with all, praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may manifest as I ought to speak. So you, you read the prison epistles, and Paul's acknowledging how he needs the prayers of the church to do these things, um, that he is on his heart so pointedly in Rome. Um, he asked for prayer from the church. It's interesting if you want to read the book of Romans. Remember, Mike's going to take us into that. That was written three years before this. Paul, and Paul wrote remarkable things there, you know, that God's not done with his ancient people, Israel. God forbid, I myself of the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. And he says to the Christians, the Gentiles, look, who he just said the gospel is going to go to them. He says in Rome, you've been grafted in. You're a wild branch, and you've been grafted into the olive tree. Don't be heady and high-minded. Don't think too much of yourself. In fact, you should treat them with deference and with respect. It's because blindness has happened to them that you have come into the blessing of the gospel as a wild branch. But that God one day would bring them back as well. So... In all of this, Paul, in, in writing, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, it says he talked to all those who came and talked to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So he's preaching the kingdom with all confidence. We're not told by Luke how this ends. So we, all scholars, I would say, agree that his sentence is acquitted. Paul is released. If Paul was taken then and martyred and put to death in Rome, Luke certainly would have finished that way and told us. He's a remarkable chronologer. The whole book of Luke is astounding in his language, his understanding of the culture, and so forth. We hear nothing of that here. In fact, he writes Philemon from his custody, um, and he says there, but with all, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers 
I shall be given unto you. And he says there, salute you, my fellow prisoners in Christ, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, and so forth. He says there, when he writes the prison epistle of Philemon, you know, make, prepare for me because I know I'm going to be getting out of here. I know I'm going to be released. He says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He knows he's going to be set free. He's going to be released. And Paul will then, as far as we know, go through the churches in Asia, go to Spain, and then come back again where he's finally taken into custody because as time went on, it becomes illegal to be a Christian. But at this point, he's preaching the kingdom of God and notice teaching. There's a difference between those two things, preaching for the lost, teaching for the flock, feeding the flock of God, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence. Now, look, this is one word. No man forbidding him. This is the last word in the book of Acts. It's literally unhinderedly. That's the way the book of Acts ends. The last word in the book of Acts is he was preaching Christ unhinderedly. Now, that's still happening. It's why we're here tonight. It's why your friends are getting saved. It's why the world around you needs you so desperately. You know, I think we want to take note that 54 times through the book, the Holy Spirit was mentioned. You know, we don't want to undertake what's in front of us in the flesh, that's for sure. But God's the same. He hasn't changed. His word is the same. The Holy Spirit is still working through the church all over the world tonight. And Luke, through the Holy Spirit, tells us this work went on unhinderedly. So you and I tonight, we're in Acts 29. It doesn't end. Takes us to Rome, and he doesn't end. You know, does he write the book of Acts during the two years when he's there with Paul? Paul's been in custody for four years. Imagine that. And, And this is burning. You know, he's a guy who wants to get out and get going and preach the gospel Two years in Caesarea and then two whole years here, it says, in Rome. He's in custody. But we have Ephesians. We have Colossians. We have Philemon. We have, you know, these prison epistles that have gone all over the world. And Luke is with him. Uh, Aristarchus, you know, how, what an important time it was in the history of the church. But four years have gone by quickly. Paul is released History tells us 62 to 63 A.D. He had arrived, we're about 40 years after Acts chapter 1. Luke gives this remarkable history. He had arrived in Rome between 60 and 61 A.D. Two years, he's released 62 to 63 A.D. Now, Nero was reasonable up till this time, and it seems that he heard Paul give testimony, and then Paul leaves, and Nero loses his mind. He had an opportunity, and he heard the truth. So Rome burns. History tells us Nero started the fire. Rome burns July 19th, 64 AD. Paul is released 62 to 63, so he's released before Rome burns because Nero blames it on the Christians. And if Paul had still been there, they'd have never let him go. So Paul is released. The official persecution begins in 66 AD, out of the fire in 64 AD. Then it becomes illegal in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. Uh, Paul is martyred in the spring of 68 AD. seven years after this or so. And Nero commits suicide about three months after that. He's also gone. Then 70 AD, which were about eight years or so after this, Jerusalem is destroyed. And Rome turns, begins to turn in a more hostile direction. And the Colosseum is under construction, and the Colosseum is completed in 80 A.D., about 18 years after we're hearing. But by the time the Colosseum, 
is completed, Rome has begun to decline. If you're interested, you can read Edward Gibbon's five volumes on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. He knew more about Rome than Rome. But for the first 400 years, Rome was a republic. Imagine a country starting call itself a republic. And the republic bragged that in the first 400 years, there wasn't a single divorce in the Republic of Rome. Then it became more immoral. The emperors came. Rome began slowly to decline. And Gibbons, in his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, says these are the five reasons that the Romans saw destroying the empire. Number one, first, the rapid increase of divorce with the undermining of the sanctity of the home, which is the basis of society. Imagine such a thing. The second reason, decline and fall, higher and higher taxes. The spending of money for bread and celebrations. That all the people, when the, once the Colosseum was done, they would just cried, give us bread and give us the circus. They didn't care about being stuffed in little apartments. They no longer had a stake in the game. They didn't care about what the empire, the republic was. They just wanted to get bread and the circus, the entertainment. It's, you have to imagine that. Third, there was a mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming ever more exciting and brutal. Do with that what you like. The fourth reason for the decline and fall is the building of gigantic armaments when the real enemy was within the decadence of the people. The Romans recognized that. An inordinate amount of money being spent on these huge armaments, I'm not against that. I think we should be able to beat anybody that way we'll be saved. But meantime, it says they didn't recognize the real enemy. What was really destroying them was within. We have to take inventory of those things. And fifth, remarkably, the decay of religion. Now, the Romans weren't saying Christianity. They just said the decay of religion, faith fading into mere forms, losing touch with life, and becoming impotent to guide people. Isn't that amazing? The fall and decline of the Roman Empire. First, the rapid increase of divorce, losing the sanctity of the home, which is the basis of society. Second, higher and higher taxes, spending of money for celebrations, partying. Third, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming more and more exciting and brutal. Fourth, the building of gigantic armaments when the real enemies within, the decadence of the people. And fifth, the decay of religion, faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life and becoming impotent to guide it, that was 2,000 years ago, and here we are. The book of Acts has continued, and Rome declined and fell, and the church is still here, and here we are tonight. And if you and I feel like, well, we're heading into that kind of culture, God's people have been doing that forever. Egypt, Babylon, Rome, the church through the ages. So the Holy Ghost, 54 times the Holy Spirit, we're in desperate need, each of us as individuals, to be asking the Lord for a fresh filling and empowering of his spirit in the days that we're living in. Amen? Amen. We have to understand that the word of God is fact. Jesus said, John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He doesn't say thy word is true. It is, of course. But he says specifically, thy word is truth. That's, that's where truth is. It's in the Bible. It's the word of God. It ain't out there with everybody's opinion. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God. 
we have that which has equipped the church through the centuries. And the church made it through that decline and fall of Rome, which sounds just like the world we're living in. And God has a purpose for us in this day, in this age, amongst the lost. Amongst the lost that he loves so much that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. So uh, I encourage you, be reading ahead into Romans, written three years before this. But that's the Roman world and it was beginning to decline, and the things written in the book of Romans was speaking to a generation that was deteriorating. So the things in the book of Romans are amazing. I can't wait to come and take notes. So let's stand, let's pray together. It's been a privilege, you guys, 41 years. I'm very thankful. Uh, are you clapping? I can't hear anymore. <laughs> All right. I'm an old guy now. You know the jokes. I bend down to tie my shoes and think, is there anything else I can do while I'm down here? <clears throat> and I think, well, let me pull up my socks. And I remember I don't have socks on. When I was young, I took acid. Now I take antacids. All right. When I was young, I liked to go to a hip joint. A hip joint is something else now at this point. So, uh, But I sure appreciate serving the Lord. I've never gone to work a day in my life. I love what I do. Uh, I love gathering with you guys. I love the fact that if the world starts to blow, blow up, I can shoot over here and see all you guys and we can go together. You know. So what a privilege. I'm so thankful for the young guys. I'm so thankful that if I'm pastoring well, that transition will happen well as well. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it is, and I'm looking forward to the, my calling is not over, my journey is not over, the things that the Lord, we're, we're starting some great projects around here, we'll, we'll let you know as we move on, I'm excited. But uh, communion, then Romans, I'm excited, can't wait. Father, we settle our hearts, I know you've overheard and Lord, uh, to you, 40 years is, uh, is nothing, Lord, as it were, Lord, from eternity. But you knew, you've guided, you've blessed us, Lord. We pray for Mike, Lord, and Trev and Brian as things move forward, Lord, and uh, that you'd give us wisdom, Lord Jesus. You're our shepherd, you're our Lord, you're our Savior. And Lord, you said that you would build your church, not us, that you would build it and the gates of hell would not prevail. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we get to be part of it, Lord. And Lord, as we look at these things this evening in, in, a, in a culture that's disintegrating, that's in decline and is bound to fall without revival. Lord, let us remember we have your word and we have your Holy Spirit. We have our salvation. We have the blood of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, the ascension and the return. Lord, help us to hold those things dear, Lord. And no doubt there's many of us here, Lord, get pulled in other directions, maybe struggle with substance, pornography, Lord, other things. You know all of the things that war against our soul and pull on our hearts, Lord, and make an appeal to the traitor that's still within. But we know that none of that has to reign in our lives, as Paul tells us in Romans. So, Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit for this day. Let your word rise off the page for us in new ways, Lord, and capture our hearts. We do put these things before you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Receive our thanks, Lord, as we lift our voices. Amen.